And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Larry Pratt, Executive Director of Gun Owners of America. Larry, thanks for joining us. Very nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. Larry, to set up our discussion today, we want to review one of the most important amendments in our Bill of Rights in the U.S. Constitution, that is the Second Amendment. You know, on the surface, uh, to many folks, maybe it it doesn't really appear to be all that important. Uh, Folks uh, go on their merry way, uh, eating their food, going to ball games, having lots of entertainment options, using their smartphones, and just plain enjoying their American freedoms. And yet, Historians and good leaders will warn us that freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. So, Larry, today, could you help us understand what is the Second Amendment all about? Second Amendment uh, was something that clearly had uh, been brought front and center to the awareness of our founding fathers. Not that there was a Second Amendment during the War for Independence, but it was the the factors that were leading up to that war, which underscored the importance of an armed populace. Uh, Some historians have tried to make us think that the war grew out of taxation. No taxation without representation. It would be nice if we remembered that today, by the way. (laughs) But anyway, uh, uh, and that was a factor. There's no question about it. But it was more of a... Uh, of a consequence of other policies that were being attempted to be imposed by the Crown. Uh, They had been banning importation of ammunition into the colonies. And that, I think, more than many other things that the Crown was doing, convinced the founders that um, they don't have our best interests in mind, and uh, if they don't want us to be able to protect ourselves, then there might be an ulterior reason there. These were not dumb folks. In fact, I should be half as accomplished as most of them were. So I, I think they saw a very worrisome factor, and it led, in fact, uh, ultimately to the outbreak of hostilities. The Brits had been uh, the Crown troops had been harassing powder magazines in towns surrounding Boston for over a year before it hit the fan in April of 1775. And they were trying to raid uh, any muskets that might have been stored in a municipal armory, as well as ammunition. And they did pull one off pretty completely, but they didn't normally manage to grab what they were after, and we think maybe General Gage's American wife might have been ratting him out. <laughs> and when when he began to think that, we think, uh, that's when she was on a boat back to England, never to return to later what was the United States. It was a lot about guns, uh, no matter how you, you slice it. So... When they came up with a Bill of Rights, which was a political document designed to control and to restrict what their new creature, the federal government, would be able to do, that was the Bill of Rights. Those were the ten things they thought most important to spell out so that 
those that were working for them. And they, that is precisely how they viewed the federal government, as a servant, as an employee, working for the people. The Constitution even starts out, we the people. So any way you look at it, that war, which concluded in the 1780s, not all at the same date, was a war to peel back over-robust government that the British crown was trying to impose on the colonists. The colonists were approximately 3,000 miles away. They didn't give a rip about the colonists because the colonists couldn't be there to scream about it in Parliament. We were lucky to have a representative in London to uh, bellyache about it, and uh, the Crown really wasn't overly concerned about what our forefathers thought. So they were laying it on. And finally, uh, it came to a head. The Brits were after the magazine in Concord, and on their way they went through Lexington, and that's when it happened. Nobody had any prearranged notion that that was going to be the date the War for Independence began, but it turned out that that was the day. April 19, 1775, uh, was when a ragtag group of American colonists, who at the time were British subjects and saw themselves as British subjects, who were being oppressed by a government they wanted to like and submit to, but they couldn't take it anymore, and as this well-armed, uh, well-disciplined regiment of British soldiers was bearing down on them in Lexington Green, they shot back. Uh, and I think it's probable, although not totally certain, that the Brits did fire the first shot. Though certainly uh, that would be a conclusion that we could draw from what the captain of the little militia band had told his men at the time, Captain Parker, Hold your fire. If it's a war that they want, then that's what they'll get. But clearly he was telling the men, you fire second. We want to make sure that if it does get nasty, we can show the world that it was they who started it. And in fact, that was exactly how they presented their case. As soon as the Brits attacked in Lexington Green, we had somebody on a fast for the day, shipped to London uh, to the court to explain, hey, it was your out-of-control General Gage that done it. We didn't start this thing. You did. And that kind of uh, colored the whole British uh, reception of the news of the day. I don't think the Brits ever really caught the spirit of limiting government because they were they looked at themselves as subjects. Once America was willing to declare independence from the crown, we became citizens. And that's more than just a legal concept. That's really kind of a way of looking at yourself and the world. And that was a very unusual notion uh, for the day, or for that matter, perhaps any time, that the citizens are the boss, the government is subservient to the people. We're losing that uh, insight, but that is what informed the colonists at the time, the new American citizens at the time, that they were citizens, they were the bosses, uh, they were the ones that chose their representatives, not their rulers, uh, 
their representatives. And so as, as things developed and they finally were able to come to an agreement on the Constitution as a political trade-off, the Constitution was agreed to because it was also agreed that immediately thereafter there would be a Bill of Rights drawn up, and to James Madison's credit, who was not terribly enthusiastic about a Bill of Rights, he'd made the deal and he kept the deal, even though there were pressures on him not to do so. So uh, James Madison should go down as a man of, of integrity. And that Bill of Rights was a clear statement to the people of the time and to us today the government was viewed as restricted. And even, in fact, in the main body of the Constitution, you look at Article One, Section 8, virtually all of the powers that were delegated to the new government are spelled out in that Article One, Section 8. I think it might be, if I remember correctly, about 18 different specific things that they can do, coin money, post office, uh, build forts, that sort of thing. And that was it. That was absolutely it. The Tenth Amendment came along shortly thereafter in so many words saying, if you didn't get what we were doing in Article One, Section 8, then get it now. Anything we didn't write down there or anywhere else in the Constitution as a specific delegation of power is retained by the states or the people. Wow, what a notion. It's almost as revolutionary today as it was then. Well, yeah, I'm just sitting here thinking about that very fact. Um, this is an amazing amendment, uh, the Tenth Amendment. But um, today we're talking about the Second Amendment, and you've set this up very well. Uh, on the phone line with us is Larry Pratt, Executive Director of Gun Owners of America. The Second Amendment reads, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Larry, um, there's many people where um, this this means a lot to them. Uh, one group is just simply sportsmen, uh, men and women that enjoy hunting, uh, target practicing, that sort of thing. Before we get to the more crucial aspect of the Second Amendment, can you speak to these people briefly? Well, we do have that right to keep and bear arms that is protected by the Second Amendment. While it wasn't designed, didn't have anything to do with sportsmen or really personal self-defense, it does have those collateral benefits. Because we have the protection of the people's individual right to keep arms so that if the government were to go off in a tyrannical direction, we could hold them accountable with those arms, Therefore, that's the protection that's being offered, and it means that since you've got your gun around, if you want to go hunting, then you're able to do so. And if you need to uh, take a shot at a home invader, you can do so. Um, so that's, I, I think, important that we see that this was a liberty document. The Second Amendment was embedded in that Bill of Rights, designed in all different ways, spelled out in the Bill of Rights to control, to restrict what the government was able to do, making it very clear that the government only could act legitimately in certain limited delegated areas. And if we could get that notion recalled uh, by the American people today, um, 
one, one of the consequences would be a plummeting of the property value of my house outside of Washington, D.C., because there wouldn't be that many people uh, coming to work here. There would be an exodus because there wouldn't be jobs because so many of the things being done by the federal government are outside the authority of the Constitution, and I would probably lose half of the value of my house. But since uh, it's paid for, uh, my main concern would be to go strangle, politically speaking, of course, the county supervisors to make sure they commensurately lowered my taxes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Larry, um, the uh, Second Amendment certainly uh, secondarily is a blessing, you could say, to sportsmen. Now, the the primary purpose, as you've already pointed out, is really to assure that our government doesn't uh, get out of hand and that this Bill of Rights lists specific prohibitions on governmental power. Um, Can you talk to how rogue governments in the past have come in and tried to disarm people? There's a great historical account available of all places in a Hollywood movie. I think it's called The American Story. But if you go onto YouTube and you ask for the Battle of Athens, it'll pop up the last, I don't know, 15 minutes maybe of that movie. So the the Battle of Athens was something that actually happened in 1946, a little city in East Tennessee. Returning veterans were just disgusted to find that the local uh, politicians were ruling the city in a totally corrupt fashion. And as they suspected, on election night, the ballot boxes were gathered up by the cops against state law because they're supposed to have been counted at the place where the voting took place. And the boxes were literally carted over to the cop shop where they were going to, quote, count them there. And I might add... I think that's an advantage that we should consider long and hard. Paper ballots uh, are not foolproof. People can stuff ballot boxes uh, when the rest of us are not looking. But it's a lot more evident when that kind of fraud occurs. And it's something that uh, uh, when you, you can act, if you actually see them carry off the boxes, you know you've been had. My wife was born in Central America, in Panama, and the one time she voted there before becoming a U.S. citizen, she saw her ballot being carried off in the box by the military. And so everybody knew that government was illegitimate, and it plagued them the whole time. Finally, it led to uh, elections, real elections, uh, and since then, Panama's had a relatively uh, tranquil political process. But it never would have happened had they not been able to be just absolutely certain that we was had. They stole the vote, literally stole the vote. And that's what happened in Athens, Tennessee. And as a result, the fellows in the town and probably the surrounding area came barreling into town not long after the theft of the ballot boxes and surrounded the cop shop. There was a brief shootout, and the Police decided that this was not going to end well, way too many of them, not enough of us, and uh, they left the ballot boxes in the police station 
and came out without their guns, hands up, end of game, all over, and indeed the reform slate had won. That was a very robust use of the Second Amendment, and it it turned out just the way it was intended to. It regained control from a tyrannical government, returning it to the legitimacy of popular control. We saw something somewhat similar in Nevada a couple of years ago when Clive and Bundy uh, was being besieged by federal agents over a dispute of where he could water his cattle on, I think, unconstitutionally owned, quote, federal lands. And instead of letting the case work its way through the courts where it was, the BLM agents, Bureau of Land Management agents, decided that they were just going to come in and stick some guns in his face and uh, uh, take those cattle. And uh, ostensibly, initially, they were saying they were going to sell them to satisfy their claim against Cliven Bundy. Well, he and some family, large family, uh, held them off. And as word got out that this was happening, more and more people came from around the area, ultimately from around the country. And the feds, in the end, decided that they weren't going to press the issue. They actually had corralled about a 100 of the guy's cattle. It was like a million bucks on the hoof. Uh, in a temporary makeshift pen, and unarmed men and women ranchers were on horseback riding toward that pen to release the cattle. BLM agents with their fingers on triggers were getting ready to um, resist them by force, to shoot them right out of their saddles, unarmed men and women. And happily, even though the sheriff was worthless of Clark County, a deputy went out and said to the head BLM guy, do you want to be known as the folks that gunned down unarmed men and women? That got to him. That pricked his conscience. The guns went down. They rode off. The cattle were set free, and they discovered deep pits that had been dug by the BLM. They were going to slaughter the guy's cattle and just dump them in there to try to financially wipe him out. That's how craven and how evil the federal government got on Clive and Bundy's ranch. And had it not been for a national outpouring of armed support, Second Amendment support, if you will, of Clive and Bundy, it would not have ended that way. Yeah, that's very interesting. Today we're talking about the Second Amendment with Larry Pratt, Executive Director of Gun Owners of America. Larry, we have maybe five minutes left. Um, here in New York State, where we're located... Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, we we have a extremely restrictive something called the SAFE Act, and it uh, bans possession of any high-capacity magazines, uh, Ammo dealers are required to do background checks. Uh, there's a registry of assault weapons, and it just goes on and on. And I believe the magazines. Yeah, and and some some of the um, some of the freedom loving folks around have um, signs up in front of their houses. Repeal the Safe Act, and it's kind of funny as I see those signs. I think that's probably a pretty safe house. Um, for pe- for people like me, there's probably guys in there that just love their freedoms, and they really don't like the state coming in telling them what to do and and taking away their Second Amendment rights. Well, let me comment on this because I find this uh, 
actually an encouraging uh, situation. Not from what you've just described so far, but what I've learned is that the way the SAFE Act operates, those firearms were already registered. Uh, when the folks bought them, uh, they had to sign all kinds of paperwork. They were required to re-register under the SAFE Act. And some 95%, according to many reports, have simply said, I ain't doing it. They, as the Russians would have called them, they're a bunch of refuseniks. <laughs> they're just not playing by uh, the governor's unconstitutional game. And that really stumped the governor and some of his cronies, because that's way too many people to go after. You can try going after one to make an example of them, but what happens if they do a Cliven Bundy on you? Oops. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no question. <laughs> so so um, I'm rather encouraged as I see these signs go up, whether you have an interest in just being a sportsman or uh, a more profound uh, interest in protecting your rights as a citizen from an overreach of government. Um, one last thing I wanted to ask you about is, um, is the Second Amendment truly a protection against let's say, uh, out-of-control commander-in-chief declaring martial law and using the nation's military forces to usurp and dismantle the civil rights of its citizens? That would certainly be one of the purposes of the Second Amendment. That would fit right in with why we have a Second Amendment. But the president, uh, including our dear leader at the moment, would have a real problem, he'd have to really think seriously, how much can I depend on the military to carry out something like that? Because it happens that it could be argued that the group in the population that is most aware of and most respectful of the Constitution, which they took an oath to uphold, is in the military. Mm -hmm. And there's a large percentage, we think, of soldiers and officers who, if given such an order, would say, yeah, you and who else are going to do that? <laughs> they, would, they would be sick that day. I would think there would be such a massive sickness, there wouldn't be enough vaccine in all the world to, <laughs> to help that flu out. They'd call in sick. <laughs> I think so. I really think that might be what would happen. And then they would be left with egg on their face because they had given this outrageous counter-revolutionary order, and virtually nobody obeyed it. I think that's conceivable, because when New York State is 95% non-compliant, tells me there's still a pulse left in our country. Oh, yes, no question about it. And Larry, one last question. we got one minute left. Is it inconsistent for a Christian who loves Jesus to be interested in the Second Amendment? Well, if the Christian is interested in protecting the life that God has given, our life comes from God. Any Christian, I think, would likely believe that, certainly what the Scripture teaches. Then you take what measures you can, including the use of lethal force, to protect that gift of God. If you go to gunowners.org, which is our website, in our fact sheet section, you can find a What Does the Bible Say About Gun Control? And it deals with the Scripture's teaching on the use of lethal force and self-defense, Old and New Testament alike, without exception. 
the teaching of Scripture is use lethal force if need be in defense of life against illegitimate taking of life. Very well put. Today I've been talking with Larry Pratt, Executive Director of Gun Owners of America. Larry, thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate being with you. Thanks for having me on your show. And dear listener, if you'd like to listen to this broadcast again, it's up on our website as a podcast. Check us out. We're found at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. And for Redeemer Broadcasting, I'm Dan Elmendorf. Please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.